The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming, Ajahn. Many of you might know Ajahn because you've been here before. Ajahn has been visiting for maybe 15 years now, and it's getting close to 30 years as a monastic, trained originally in, at Wapananachat, the Western monastery that Ajahn Chah set up with, uh, through Ajahn Sumedho back, I guess, in the mid-70s. So it's been a while. And uh, Ajahn practiced in Thailand after doing his five years of training at the monastery. He moved around and met with many of the elder Thai forest monks, learned from them, and uh, for the last 15 years has been the abbot of a monastery outside of Auckland, Vimuti. You can find some wonderful stuff online at the Vimuti website. And we're really fortunate to have Ajahn here. Isn't that often at a lay Buddhist meditation center like Common Ground that we have a well-seasoned monastic, someone who's practiced in this tradition? So we're really grateful, Ajahn, that you're here tonight to teach us about karma. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa Buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami In the, <clears throat> the very first verse of the Dhammapada, which is this collection of pithy early teachings of the Buddha, the very first verse, it says, all phenomena are preceded by mind, which in and of itself is a statement worthy of deep contemplation. All phenomena are preceded by mind, and if we act or speak with a a corrupted or with a defiled or with a pure and bright mind, then the results, the corresponding res results will follow, just as if a shadow is following us on a sunny day or the wheels of an ox cart follow the ox that pulls it. So tonight I'd like to talk a bit about karma and the law of karma and the way the Buddha used that term. It plays a very central role in every aspect of the Buddhist practice, from the very beginning right up until the end. Now, we might be uh, a bit more familiar with the Sanskrit version of the word karma, uh, and that has made its way into our um, ordinary speech in, in some ways that are uh, different than the way the Buddha used the term run into people and they say, you see someone in a bad situation, they say, well, it's just his karma. It's just his karma. So, well, okay, but that's a very different way of using the term than the way the Buddha used the term. Right? So tonight I'll be using the, the Pali term, K-A-M-M-A, rather than the Sanskrit, K-A-R-M-A. Now, the Buddha also differentiated between karma, 
which we tend to translate as action, but I'll go into the details of that, and the results of those actions. So the results we don't call karma, we call vipaka, or I'll just call them the results of karma. So the essence of karma is intention. We see, we, we tend to look to actions and speech as manifestations of, of karma. But really, everything we do, everything we say, even everything we think is preceded by a movement of mind. So in Pali, this is called jaitana. In English, we don't have a perfect translation for that. So we approximate it and say intention. We call it intention. But it's this movement of mind that precedes everything we think, everything we say. Everything that we do that arises from an intention, then it's going to have certain corresponding results. So the Buddha is talking about this uh, a law, a natural law that is based around causes and effects. But once we start to look into it, the myriad interwoven causes become so complicated that it becomes a big subject. To try to figure out exactly how the results are going to manifest from certain karma that we make, Buddha said, it's just just too complicated. Drive you crazy. It's one of the four... It's one of the inconceivables. It will drive you crazy if you try to figure out every permutation of how the results will manifest. But there are clear patterns that we can distill. And like every other aspect of the Buddhist teaching, it doesn't just ask us to believe in the karma. It's not like a, a dogma that you have to believe in. If you want to be a Buddhist, you have to believe in the law of karma. Otherwise, you're not a Buddhist. So no, this is something that we can experiment with in our own life. We can test it out. We can see. You know, there are some things that are very easy to see. You know, if we if we act or speak in a particular way, then there's going to be corresponding results. We can play around with it and say, well, let's say if I if I treat someone nicely, what's the, the what's the effect of that? If I treat someone with an intention of uh, ill will, what's the result of that? So some, many aspects of the law of karma are not so mystical. Right? And, uh, and so it gets away from this sometimes popular idea of karma as being a mystical fatalism. And this is not at all what the Buddha referred to when we're talking about karma. The idea that somehow things are fixed, the Buddha denied that. That would undermine the whole path of practice. The idea that we, you know, there is intention and there is, there is effort that we can make that will transform and gradually purify our stream of consciousness to the point where what we call full enlightenment. Right? If everything was fixed, then that would undermine all of the effort. Why bother making any effort? Everything is fixed. So, the way the Buddha looked at the term karma is 
is a very dynamic relationship with the present moment. You think of every, everything that's ever happened in our cosmos, the entire history of the universe, every cause and effect leading up to this moment. And you really begin to appreciate it. To this moment. Everything is leading up to this right here. And whether you like it or not, there's nothing we can do about it. You can't change it. It's too late for that. You can't change it. You can, you can resist it. You can accept it. You can love it. You can hate it. But it doesn't, it's, according to the law of karma, it's perfect. According to causes and effects, it's actually perfect. The way it is right now. But how we respond to that, now that's where we have at least the illusion of free will. So this is where we can literally create our future. Moment by moment, how we respond to a particular situation. We respond in a habitual way without a lot of clear awareness, then it really depends on what our habits are. Sometimes we have good habits, but often we don't. Often we have bad habits. Someone pushes our button and boop, we respond with a sense of frustration, anger, maybe say something that we wish we hadn't said, and then we keep perpetuating. Let's say exact same situation. Someone pushes the button and we're clearly aware of what happened. We may feel blood pressure rising a bit, but I'm just going to observe that and watch that and not let it go any further. So then that changes our future. It literally changes our future. And, and then realize we're, uh, we're not victims. The way it is right now is the way it is, but the way it is the next moment is determined by how we react right now. So a reaction doesn't necessarily mean, you know, have a negative connotation. If you react with wisdom, then we're going to create wisdom in the future. If you want to have a, a peaceful future, then react with peace in the present. If you want to have a, a if you want to be a wise person, you know, consciousness full of wisdom in the future, then what are the causes? in the present moment that will lead to that. And then it becomes very interesting. So, wow, every moment of the whole day, I have an opportunity to experiment with this. Now, we tend to think about good and bad karma. And just for ease of, of speaking, we tend to talk about, oh, that's good karma. Oh, feeding the monks, that's good karma. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> but good and bad comma they're not very precise terms you think about good I mean normally when we use the word good it, it can refer to for example it just gives us pleasure if something gives us pleasure then we call it good oh that food's delicious yeah it gives us pleasure we call it good how's your hamburger it's good yeah how's your hot dog it's bad didn't give me pleasure. So, right, artwork, you know, if you see a beautiful painting, oh, it's good artwork. Why? Well, it, gives it gives you pleasure. Right? The weather, hey, how's the weather today? It's good. Really? No, I think it's bad. Does it give you pleasure or not? So that's not a very precise way of, of uh, using that word good and bad. And so, you know, we have to be... Uh, the Buddha tried to be more precise. And sometimes uh, we just use the words good and bad in a utilitarian way. 
you've got a hammer, and uh, if, it, if it works to pound a nail in, you call it a good hammer. If it's got a loose head and, and it's a bit shaky and unreliable, you call it a bad hammer. And even morally, the words good and bad can be quite... Uh, uh, they depend a lot on which culture we grow up in. Grow up in one culture and, and uh, certain actions are praised and say, oh, that's good, that person's a good person. But that exact same behavior in another culture is considered quite bad. But lots, you know, lots and lots of examples of that. So, so the terms good and bad are not so reliable. Now, the terms that the Buddha used, much more precisely defined. Kusala and Akusala. Kusala, again, with our English translation, we've come to mainly use the term wholesome. So we talk about wholesome karma and unwholesome karma. But exactly how is that defined? Now, anything that arises from greed, hatred, or delusion Delusion is considered unwholesome karma. Anytime there's an intention that manifests as a thought or something we say or something we do, if that intention arises from anger, selfish greed, delusion, then uh, the result will not be leading to it won't be leading to happiness right? in some shape or form. It's not going to be beneficial. It's not going to have a, uh, a helpful, beneficial result leading to clarity or peace of mind or, or happiness for either for oneself or for others. So with these terms, I mean, it doesn't have to be raging anger. It can be much more subtle, subtle forms of uh, niggling irritation. You know, there's m- many subtle forms of, of anger. Just... Frustration, things happen and it's frustrating. It's not satisfying. You know, pervasive discontent. It's like, well, you know, every time, every moment that we're feeling a little frustrated or discontent, then, oh, okay, now according to the Buddha's definition, that's, that's bad karma. I'm sorry, that's unwholesome karma. <laughs> and, and it won't have a, a, a positive result. And so the, the definition of these terms you know, doesn't necessarily correspond with what the mainstream culture that we live in thinks is good or bad or acceptable. Right? So, I mean, in our culture, rampant greed, even in, even in American culture, rampant greed is considered uh, a negative quality, except in certain fields. <laughs> But there are many more subtle forms of greed that maybe all of us gradually become prey to because we're influenced by the society that places a lot of emphasis on material gain or success as a sign of being a successful, successful person. Right? We become influenced by that. So, uh, so every time that you know, we do certain things. Other people may think, oh, you're really getting your act together. You got a new car, you got a new house, way to go. Got a new job, got a nice suit. Beard, beard looks more tidy. 
you know, there's all these things that uh, mainstream society might consider positive, but then if we look at our actual intentions, well, where is it coming from? Because that's the true indication of whether we're going to be happy or not. There are many different forms of cause and effect relationships that we're engaging in the world. For example, if you, want to, if you do want to be wealthy materially, then there are certain causes and conditions, certain ways of behaving that, you know, if you're good at it, then that will kind of generally lead to being wealthy. Right? It's not just kind of mystical hit or miss. But what the Buddha was most preoccupied by was the causes and effects that will lead to a sense of pure, bright, calm, serene mind that is able to see things as they truly are. Purification of consciousness. Complete purification of consciousness. Okay, well, what causes lead to that? What intentions lead to that? Now, one of the one of the tricky defilements is delusion. You know, we may think, oh, I'm not so greedy. Maybe a little bit. I'm not that angry. A little frustrated, but and I don't see any delusion. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's because you're mired in delusion. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole point of delusion. You can't see it. It's, not, it's like a lack of clarity, and confu- a little confusion, not seeing things as they truly are. Right. Simple identification. We identify with this body. We identify with our thoughts, our moods, our perceptions. We identify, you know, well, this is my cup now. This is my water. I've only seen it in a couple of minutes. Already I can identify with it. So, you know, this is all wrapped up with delusion around sense of self. It's my water. Now, many of the meditation techniques that we develop are ways to systematically develop and perfect specific intentions. Loving kindness, for example. The traditional way of developing loving kindness as a meditation technique. Whether you feel loving or not, you try to bring up the intention May this person or may I, may all beings be free of suffering. May they be happy. May they be free of pain. And at that moment, you might have some actual loving kindness that you're feeling or you may not. But if you're generating a sincere intention, then that's already wholesome karma. May I be free of pain. Yeah. If you really believe that, you know, you say it with some uh, sincerity, then it's, yeah, may I be free of pain. May I be, may I be happy. Yeah, why not? And then you keep repeating that, 
it's like every moment you start to generate more and more and more wholesome karma. And then you start to see the results in your own mind. Actually, you do start to (laughs) suffer less. Actually, you do experience an opening of the heart. Wow, this really works. And then, uh, you know, the whole path of practice is like that. Every aspect. Generating intentions. Intentions are bound up with Pretty much everything we do. Our views and opinions, our reactions to seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, it's all cognizing, it's all coming from, originating from this intention. Right? What intention, what's our reaction? So when we see how every moment our life is, is being shaped moment by moment, it's a great opportunity. I mean, I could just continue on with a certain degree of blindness. Sometimes I'm mindful, sometimes I'm blind, sometimes I'm just acting on habit. But we have the potential to do much more. Every moment there's the potential. It's like, okay, well, how can I respond with, with wholesome karma? Love and kindness, compassion, forgiveness. Even renunciation. Now, the re- renunciation, the Buddha defined as is uh, this is wholesome intention. Not everyone in mainstream society thinks that renunciation is a good thing. Try telling your try telling your family members you want to go be a monk or a nun. They say renunciation is wholesome karma. They say I don't believe that see it as a good thing. Right? But every moment there's this opportunity for you know, giving up. Giving up something. Giving up attachment to something. Or simply seeing clearly. Simply being mindful is already wholesome karma. Clear awareness. And this is why we put so much emphasis on mindfulness, awareness, being attentive, not just to our nose tip, physical sensations, but also to everyone around us, depending on the situation. Because it's only when we are very clearly aware that we start to see what is actually motivating us, what kind of intentions are are arising in our own mind. We may think that we're motivated for certain reasons, but then we take a close look at our own mind moment by moment, we realize, oh, it's actually very different. Sometimes it's a bit humbling. Almost every moment I'm motivated by fear and insecurity or a desire for gratification or a wish for praise. Mm. Mm. (laughs) Mm. No wonder I'm not perfectly happy. Mm? I should have everything. I should be happy. I have everything. I have everything I need to be happy. Why is it that Still not always happy. Well, what is it that, what kind of intentions are we generating all day long? And that will tend to give us a clue. Now, the results of karma, 
vipaka. They don't happen on a simple one-to-one relationship with the intentions. There are so many mitigating factors that come into play that you cannot you cannot accurately predict exactly when or how strongly a certain result will manifest. Right? There's all, all these different um, modifying factors. For example, motivation. We tend to sometimes use the words intention and motivation almost interchangeably. But in this context, intention would be, for example, let's say, let's say I intend to, let's say you have a horse that you love. You have a horse that you love and, and as it's racing it breaks its leg and you have the intention to kill that horse. But you're not motivated by hatred, you're not motivated by greed. There'll still be some delusion there, but generally you're motivated by compassion, the wish that this being, this living being, be um, no longer suffering, right? knowing that that's really that's the only option. Right? So the result that comes from that is going to be very different than if you just out of, of uh, wish for fun or anger or hatred, you go off and you shoot a horse. The result, the karmic result, is very different. So, no matter what our intention is, there is always going to be some associated re- result with that. If you have an intention to kill, for example, even if your motivation is out of compassion, there will be some, res- there will be some unwholesome or painful result that comes from that intention. But motivation is a very powerful mitigating factor. What's your motivation? Why are you doing something? Are you motivated by kindness or are you motivated by greed and anger? So that's one factor. Now, the, uh, if you have the exact same intention, but then the, uh, the object or the, the person or the being is different, then that will make a difference as well. Let's say you, again, if you want to kill an animal, if you're going to kill, you have the intention to kill a mosquito, and you have the exact same intention to kill an elephant, the karmic result is going to be much heavier if you kill an elephant. Just because of the difference difference in the animal itself. It doesn't mean we're free of... uh, It's helpful in, in sometimes making decisions in life. And sometimes we find ourselves in dilemmas in life where we have to make difficult decisions. And it's helpful to um, just understand this whole process. Right? So for uh, other examples are, I mean, if you, right in the suttas, if, if you say you offer... If you offer food to a dog, it's quite it's considered good karma, you know, wholesome karma with beneficial result. If you offer food to 
someone who's keeping five precepts or offer food to someone who, someone who's an enlightened being, then that's considered uh, far greater beneficial result. It amplifies the result. It amplifies the, uh, the result of whatever intention that we generate. So the intensity of the intention and the clarity of the intention also will make a big difference. Right? Now we may be part of a group that normally uh, does some service. And we're doing good things and we follow through with whatever people are doing. Or maybe it's just habits. Maybe it's just on our schedule. And we do some service. But there's not a, a very clear intention. You know, there is intention there, but maybe there's not a lot of awareness around it. But you do the exact same thing with a very clear intention. I am going to do this act of service to help somebody else out. Right? Now that has a far greater impact on our minds. Right? It reverberates more deeply in our consciousness. When I used to live with many of the forest masters in Thailand, you know, we get the opportunity to look after them, bring them this, whatever they needed, we look after them in various ways. And, um, you could go to their, you could go around late at night and and offer a foot massage with some of the other monks and and ask dhamma questions. There's all sorts of ways that you can help them out, bringing them what they need, carrying their bowl on alms round, and helping put on their robes. You know, there's all sorts of ways that we look to help these uh, teachers of ours. And I would, I would try every time, right, I would try to make a clear intention. <laughs> By the power of this wholesome karma, may this lead to enlightenment or um, uh, deepening of samadhi or deepening of insight in some way. You know, may, this, may this lead to uh, eradication of defilements. So that clarity of intention then has a far greater impact on my mind, you know, the way it works. Far greater impact than simply doing things by uh, habit. If you you live in the same monastery and you just see it as a duty. It's just a duty to, to look after your teacher or whatever. It's just a duty, but you know, do it. You do it. And then, even if the actual the physical movement of the body and, the, and the, the service is the same, the intentions will be different and therefore the results will be different. So again, you know, every day, if you try to find the opportunities to make very clear intentions, why am I doing this? What, what is the purpose? Even if you sit down to meditate, are you just sitting down and just seeing what happens? Or are you sitting down with, a, with clear intention? Because right? that clarity of intention when you sit down to meditate will make a big difference 
both in the quality of the meditation, but also the direction that it leads. You sit down with this meditation session, my intention is to mainly develop awareness of the breath coming in and out for the purposes of developing a serenity and clarity of mind for the purposes of developing insight leading to wisdom. Right? And that will help to guide our efforts. You know, whatever effort that we put forth then will be guided in a particular direction based on our intentions. So that gives us a sense of, uh, you know, a bit more of a, a sense of control over our life. Even if this uh, sense of control ultimately is, is uh, there's no one in control. Still, we're not to the point of complete freedom from identification. So until we are, then we can still use our sense of self in a wise way. So, so everything we do, we have clarity of intention for the purpose of what we, what are achieving our values in life, or what are our values. And then it kind of brings us back to what kind of future do I want to have? What kind of person would I, would I aspire to be? What values do I want to manifest in my life? Okay, well, what I do right here and right now, what intentions I generate, will that then lead in that direction? And if we're closely watching our minds throughout the day, our daily activities, then we start to see to what degree our intentions are actually leading in the direction of the things that truly matter to us. Right? We find, you know, Maybe a lot of our intentions are just around you know, surviving or, or things that really don't matter to us in the big picture. Or many of our intentions might actually be going in the opposite direction of where we would like to see us end up in the future. So that's good to see. It's good to see, at, at least we know, if we start to see this connection between our intentions and our own happiness, our own fulfillment, our own sense of, of meaning, then we will naturally start to incline towards happiness. Our minds wish to incline towards happiness if we just give it enough information, the correct information, clearly seeing what's going on in the present, then we can make that right effort of intentionally generating wholesome intentions. Hmm? Or maybe just keeping the unwholesome at bay. Right? That's also very, very wholesome. Habits are generated by how we respond every moment. They're not simply inherited. You know, they're not all just inherited from our culture or family or whatever uh, society that we live in. But we can develop a lot of true freedom independent of those things 
and develop our own habits based on what we consider to be wholesome intentions. So every time we respond in a particular way, it tends to strengthen a particular habit. If we see that we have a habit of responding in a, an unhelpful manner in a particular situation, then it is worth making the effort to try to restrain ourselves and, and modify that behavior. As we break that habit, you know, just start to change, start to make improvements. One of the factors that affects the, the how results are felt is the degree to which we are making wholesome comma or unwholesome comma habitually. Now, if we generally have good habits and we're making a lot of wholesome comma every day, helping others, generally being kind, aware, sensitive person, trying to do helpful, useful, beneficial things in life. But occasionally we make a mistake or respond out of anger or do something that we know was unwholesome karma. The effects of that will be buffered by all of the, the good karma that we do. Right? If we're normally not doing a lot of good karma, then we do that same action. Same intention, same action, the results will be felt much more heavily. Right. You take this, take this cup of water, put in a teaspoon of salt, and then drink it, it's going to taste very salty. It's going to be generally unpleasant. Right. So, if the, te- if the teaspoon of salt is like an act of unwholesome karma, and the water is our, our general amount of uh, wholesome karma that we're doing habitually on a daily basis, then we're going to taste that salt pretty clearly. Whereas if you take that same teaspoon of salt, of unwholesome karma, and put it into a big pond of clear water, and then you dip this cup in there and drink from that, you're going to hardly notice the taste of salt at all. Maybe you won't notice it at all because it's so diffused. (laughs) Now the effect is still there. There's no denying. You know the salt was put into the water. It's not nullifying the effect of the salt. It's not nullifying the presence of of the salt. It's not nullifying the effect of of the unwholesome karma. But because the the amount of good karma is so great then you just barely notice the, uh, the unpleasant taste. Because sometimes we make mistakes, you know? It's difficult to be perfect. So, you know, you can kind of <laughs> you know, practice ahead of time. Try to do as much good karma as you can ahead of time um, so that those times when we make a mistake, we have a bit of a buffer zone kind of soften the effects. It's a bit like in a relationship. You know, if there's a great amount of trust in a relationship, 
and one of the partners makes a mistake, then it's much more easy to forgive than if the relationship is already kind of shaky, is a low level of trust, then the exact same mistake, exact same intention, exact same action happens, then the result might be very different. It might be just the thing that, that breaks the relationship, breaks the friendship. So what we do on a, a daily basis, habitually, our habits, you know, how we respond in the moment creates habits. If we do it regularly, you have to, it sometimes takes clear intention to develop good habits. When, habit, when good habits are developed, then they tend to flow on to character traits and what we call personality. So it's not like people have a fixed personality. And these things are modifiable. You can change them. So it's like, okay, that's good news. I can, I'm not stuck with this personality. It can be modified. Now the, the timing of the, the timing of the effects, again, depends on so many different causes and conditions. The conditions have to be suitable for the results to manifest. And sometimes it is simply delayed. You know? The results are delayed. And so you can't just automatically predict, oh, if you make this comma, this is going to be the result at this particular time. Far more complicated than that. Now sometimes the results you see immediately. Instant karma. Now, if you have an intention of loving kindness, even if it's just a thought, you don't want to say anything. It's just a thought of loving kindness coming from an intention of metta. Immediately, that is pleasant. Here and now, at that moment, it's pleasant. You're already experiencing the beneficial results of that intention. The opposite is true as well. If you, if you have a, a thought of anger and you haven't said anything, done anything, you just have a thought of anger, mind state, a mood of anger, immediately it's unpleasant. If we're not very mindful, we may think that being angry is kind of fun. You know, makes us feel right, kind of bolsters our ego being angry, I'm right, they're wrong. But if we look closely, it's very unpleasant. It's, very, it's unpleasant mentally, it's unpleasant physically. It's just not a... a, a you know, immediately, we see the results of that unwholesome karma. Sometimes the effects uh, take longer, but you can still verify and, and experiment with it in this lifetime. You don't have to wait till next lifetime. So you start to experiment with your life and say, now, let's see. How did I end up in this situation? Could it be that I made decisions in the past based on intentions that led to this particular situation? And then kind of look back and think, oh, yeah, actually. Yeah, right. Certain intentions tend to have certain results and 
Right, okay, it starts to make more sense. Now what happens if I, if I, today, right? Here and now I'll make this intention and do things with this mind state. What are the results then? We start to see, oh, it starts to make sense. Things that happen to us, for the most part, are the result of our previous karma that we have made. Not everything that we experience is a result of our previous karma. There are other cause and effect forces at play, like the weather, for example. If an earthquake strikes or a tornado hits, then that doesn't mean we've all made the karma to be hit by a tornado at the same time, although some of us may have. But how we respond, you know, will very much depend on, on uh, how, how people have been developing their minds previously. Some people respond to a tragedy and they, you know, brings out the best in them, rise up to the challenge and they're really you know, out there helping everybody. Other people are, are just kind of crushed and, and depressed and other people are just full of anger. But for the most part, what we experience in our lives is a result of past intentions that we have made and developed, whether we're aware of them or not. Often we're not very aware of them. That's why we can go through our whole life with a lot of intention. A great portion of our intentions may be unwholesome, coming from fear, insecurity, or selfishness, right? without really even thinking that we're a fearful person or a selfish person. So it really pays then to, to closely watch our minds. See what? Right. Without trying to overly control it, you just watch. Okay, what, what is my intention in this situation? Right. Try to clarify it. And then you can start to generate wholesome intentions. You know, intentionally generate specific intentions. Once you start to see, oh, these type of intentions tend to lead to states of happiness or states of peace or feeling more content or more satisfied. And the happiness that I'm looking for is not necessarily a result of uh, controlling my external environment or, or people, but it's more a result of uh, this pr internal process that we call the law of karma, this internal process of, of experiencing the results of our previous intentions. Now, not every intention is going to be manifest in this lifetime. Not every result will be seen in this lifetime. So you look through the ancient suttas and talk of past lives and future lives are woven right through the teachings. There's no way that it could have been added at a later stage. But for most of us, we probably have no way of verifying do past lives exist, future lives exist. It's not really necessary to have an opinion about that to practice the Dhamma. However, you know, the, the way the Buddha explained the law of karma is that 
He takes the big picture. Sometimes the results that we see in this lifetime come from causes that were made in previous lifetimes. Sometimes the causes that we make in this lifetime are not going to be experienced before we die, but, but are lodged in the stream of consciousness that we carry on into the future. So mastery around the law of karma is basically for developing purification of our minds. Right? It's not for any other benefit. Right? It's not for, not for any other type of success. It's basically measured in how pure our minds are and the level of happiness that we experience is generally associated with how pure our minds are. Right? The greater we're able to let go of anger and experience the opposite, the more happy and peaceful we're going to feel. The greater we can let go of um, habits of, of grasping and craving based on ignorance, then the more happiness and peace of mind we're going to experience. The more that we see things as they truly are, the more we're actually going to uh, be able to respond in a wise way, moment by moment. So the whole path of practice can be summarized in what we call sila, samadhi, and banya. Sila is morality. So the idea with the law of karma around morality is that you, yeah, everything we do, everything we say, Try to have it, try to be motivated by wholesome intentions. Even within one day, you spend the whole day just acting on wholesome intentions, it's going to be a powerful day. It's going to be a great day. And, and then this aspect of samadhi is, is the you know, deepening of the peace and stability of the mind, mainly through meditation, to deeper and deeper levels. And this has the effect of, of intentionally suppressing lots of the results of previous unwholesome karma. Doesn't mean we're, doesn't mean we're free of it, but temporarily we're free of it. Right? start to develop some depth of samadhi and there's a great spaciousness and um, sense of well-being and joy that arises from within. There's a lot of clarity. And it's one of those wholesome conditions that's such good karma. It's so wholesome to develop the mind in samadhi that it will suppress a lot of the negative effects of previous unwholesome karma that we've done in our life. And that gives us the space and clarity for developing insight, investigation, contemplation, systematically trying to understand the way things truly are so that ultimately, if the insight goes deep enough, then you cut off the great majority of all of our um, past unwholesome karma. What we call sotapanna or stream entry, the first level of 
the first level of the four stages of enlightenment. At that point, insight has gone so deep that almost all of the effects of our previous bad karma will be nullified. It doesn't mean that we're absolutely, f- completely free of all of it, but the Buddha compared it to, um, he kind of scooped, scooped a little bit of dirt underneath his fingernail and asked his disciples, which is greater, the dirt in my fingernail or the, all the dirt in the rest of the planet? And he said, well, there's no comparison. You know, fingernails so much less. Trifling. It's trifling amount. And the Buddha said, yes. You know, for, for one who has achieved sotapanna, the amount of, of suffering remaining, or dukkha, you know, from past unwholesome karma, is so small to be trifling you know, compared to um, if that insight had not occurred. Right. It's like when insight goes so deep you can think of all of our good and, and bad karma like this long string of beads held together by a thread. And then if you keep pulling it along day after day, it actually has become pretty heavy because it's infinitely long. And what holds it all together is this thread, which is like the sense of self or identification. As long as, as, long as we continue to reinforce that sense of delusion around this body is mine, this, these thoughts are mine, this perception is mine, this opinion, this life, this mother, this father, these children, these are all mine, my car, everything's mine, then, uh, then we're going to keep reinforcing and that, that thread and keep pulling it along. But when insight goes deep enough, it's like you cut that thread you know, towards the beginning, it's still a little bit left but you cut it towards the beginning and then the vast majority of all of those beads are just scattered. And you're no longer pulling that great burden. And that's, that's this is the great benefit of developing insight. So this is the purpose of uh, the way the Buddha teaches the law of karma for the purpose of developing insight that liberates us. You know? And uh, we're allowed to experience and realize what he termed the highest happiness or full awakening, purification of the heart. So I offer this for your reflection this evening. So Ajahn will take some questions now and uh, we'll pass the mic so that the uh, questions are recorded and also we can hear you. So would you like to start off, Mark? Ajahn, this question is about free will. You mentioned near the beginning of your talk that it seems obvious that if everything were fixed, then all the practices that the Buddha taught couldn't bring about all the beneficial results that he experienced and and taught us. But when you were describing um, our choice in a given situation, you used an interesting phrase. You said, it seems we at least have the illusion of free will. Um, now, there's some very vociferous people in the Western culture now who are arguing that free will is an illusion, that humans don't have free will. And as a, 
justification for that, they give this simple thought experiment that if we knew the state and energy, the position and energy state of every atom in the universe and all the physics that controlled it, then we'd know everything that happens in the future. And they give this as a justification for the lack of free will. Can you shed any light on this? It seems two arguments are in direct contradiction, but I'm not sure how to resolve them. Shed light on the atoms or shed light on what I said? <laughs> either, either one. I'll either. shed light on what I said. Even if ultimately we agree with the premise and the theory that we're not really any of this body or mind, right? Still, it feels like it's us. And we have to, have to use that conventional idea of me and mine in a way which is, which is going to be functional in society and, and helpful, but also we can use it in a wise way in our Dhamma practice. So we don't necessarily have to fool ourselves into thinking that you know I am the one who's making the choices. Say, oh, well, ultimately, what's that? It's just a thought. I'm identifying with a particular thought. I identify with intentions. So there are, you know, it's more wise just to see there are intentions that have certain results, right? And when we when we can encourage certain intentions in a particular way, then the results are even better, depending on what results we're looking for. Right? But in daily life, sometimes we you know, just fall into old habits. And so it's still okay to think, oh, today, how much good karma can I make today? Right? And so you can still use that you know, sense of uh, me and mine um, to, to further... Uh, the development of the wholesome. But I say that non-vociferously. <laughs> um, I was just wondering, um, you mentioned uh, uh, the, the stages of awakening, and I, I never hear those talked about in the context of the Buddha's awakening. They talk about that happening in one night. Did he just go through the stages very within that one night, or was his awakening somehow different? Apparently he went through them very quickly that night. Yeah. Thanks. Um, I heard you say that karma is dynamic, and it um, happens in the present, and... Um, and I heard you talk about co-arising. And America, like in a society of people where it's very diverse and there's been lots of trauma, um, what might cause karma from me is very related to the fabric of my society as I hear what you're saying. And so I'm hearing you, and it feels like a call 
for um, for a Buddhism that is integral to the society in which it's growing, which in this society, you know, there are lots of things different than Thai society. So I guess um, my question isn't personal about like a monastic life in 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 an orthodox kind of way, but it has to do with a permission or a validity that you hear in the teachings for a new call for a Buddhism here that has a different feel and a different look. Do you hear that in what you're saying, or really not? <laughs> that was long. <laughs> Sorry. It's a call for awakening. Now, the thing is, even just generating one wholesome intention is not going to affect just you. It's not going to affect simply your stream of consciousness. That's going to affect what you say, what you do, how you behave, your, your emotions, right? And that affects other people. Even if you don't have the specific intention to change the society around us, by changing ourselves, we do. Right? And so that's the majority of the, the Buddhist way of looking at social change. Majority, for most from traditional way, is that when the individuals, to the degree that individuals increase their level of understanding and wisdom, or purity of heart, or, or morality, or even just uh, their level of compassion, then that will have an immediate effect on their family, on the people they work with, strangers that we meet in the streets, how we, what we dedicate our lives to. Right? You know, the changes start to happen, um, even without considering, I am generating wholesome intentions for the purpose of transforming American society in the 21st century. Say, well, okay, that's probably going to happen, but you know, it, you can just start with simple. How about we just empathize with people in our society who are suffering? Right? It's just, okay, that's enough. Well, it's already quite a lot. Right? You just do that. You just start to develop empathy for people in our society who are suffering. And then you start to see, wait, actually, almost everybody in our society is suffering in a certain way, and even the people who seem to have their act together on the surface, you look, scratch the surface a little bit and you see, oh, there's a lot of unhappiness there as well. And even people who are, even the ones who are causing suffering of others, you know, they, they're experiencing a lot of unhappiness themselves. I mean, it, it's an unhappy mind that, that would, that would uh, lead to other people especially intentionally, lead to other people suffering. So yeah, that's a very... Uh, it's inescapable. Right? Now, you can also take the approach of, I'm going to be of service to society. And as soon as you have that intention, you're already helping yourself. Right? How can I help somebody else out? How can I help out someone who, who doesn't have enough? And that immediate intention is already, it already is liberating. 
to a little degree. It's like, okay, I'm not just, I'm not just stuck in me and mine and what I want. I'm, I'm, you know, it opens your heart a little bit. It's already good karma. Then you have to be careful of identifying with even a good karma. It's like, it's like oh, I helped someone out today. Oh, wow, I'm a really good person. <laughs> I helped someone out yesterday as well. I'm a really good person. I'm a better person than other people. <laughs> What's wrong with them? They should know how to, uh, you know, it goes on and we start. I, any aspect of Dharma practice, if we identify w- with it too much, then we can spoil it. But yeah, everything you do is going to, it's not, we're not isolated from the people and society around us in any way. Even if you're a hermit living in a cave, you're still going to have a, a lot of effect on the people who know that you're there. You know, it can bring up a sense of inspiration, right? You're still living with ants and mosquitoes and all sorts of bi- living beings. So we're never totally alone. And, uh, and even if our attention is focused more outwardly, we're still helping ourselves. Thank you, Ajahn. Um, <clears throat> you know, my question is, uh, you know, when I listen to you talk, you know, it seems so clear sometimes, like, what your intentions are. And I live a lot in the gray. I'm a teacher, and, uh, you know, sometimes we have conversations with administration, like, what's the best way to support this child? And sometimes, you know, in my mind, my intention is mixed. Like, I feel like, well... You know, this girl cheated. She should fail um, so that she learns a lesson, for example, and she's responsible. <clears throat> and, then, and sometimes there's a hardness around that, but I keep thinking, well, that's, that's going to be the sort of the benefit in the long run. It, it will be hard on her, but she'll learn something. And, um, you know, you can get into a lot of arguments with the administration about these kinds of things, especially around you know, graduation and so forth. But anyway, I noticed that when I try to come down hard on a student when it comes to things like um, their unwholesome karma, their bad action, I don't feel very generous or compassionate or loving or kind. I feel like I need to be hard on you so other students also see the consequences of your action and and this is an example that others can learn from but it doesn't ever really feel good and so it's very mixed I feel like I'm doing the right thing but it doesn't feel good rarely does it feel good and there's a sort of like you deserve this kind of feeling you did it to yourself <laughs> I'm just enforcing the rules yeah well in every situation, you really just have to look at, what's my intention here? What am I being motivated by? If you're motivated by the long-term um, benefit of that particular student, then there may be a great myriad of ways to bring that about. And sometimes, a teaching has to be delivered with a loud voice. It doesn't mean it's necessarily coming from anger. 
you should have seen Ajahn Chah and many teachers of his generation when things weren't, when people weren't practicing the way they should and following their defilements, he could um, raise his voice. And, it, I mean, I saw this many teachers that I lived with, but it didn't have the feeling of coming from anger, but it really got your attention. You say, wow, remember that for the rest of your life. <laughs> you know, so, so there are skillful means on, on how you deliver a helpful teaching. But as an unenlightened being, then it's easy fall, to fall into the trap of just being motivated by anger. You know, someone's doing something they shouldn't, they're disrupting the class, right? You're feeling irritated, frustrated, what's wrong with them, right? And uh, can say something out of anger. So that's when we have to be careful, right? And no matter what anyone else says, you know, about opinions, you have to check your own intention. Is my intention wholesome or unwholesome? That's going to be the greatest objective standard for determining whether the results are going to be positive or not. And you may not see any positive results in the child. Maybe the positive results will, will happen 30 years from now. It's hard to know. You know but if you're, if you're planting seeds based on wholesome intentions, that's the, that's the best that we can do. You, know, you can be pretty confident though that um, if there's any fertile soil there in that person's mind, then those seeds will take root and good things will grow from it. I don't know if this applies or not, but I, I, I think of uh, where I work, we a lot of times have people set up, my name's Ollie, uh, for appointments. And if they don't show up for the third appointment, they're canceled and they can't reschedule for, for, 60, day, for 60 days. That's just policy. What I like to do is if they haven't showed up for the third one is call the person and find out why they didn't show up and what that's about and give them an opportunity to maybe engage. So what, you know, what's, what are the obstacles and how can we use this as a learning experience? Mm -hmm. So I think of people failing sometimes and you can just say, flunk them, well, you got to redo it as opposed to maybe processing with the person. So why didn't you and what could be different so you could do that? They still get the consequence of some, you know, but if you can process with them, you can maybe find causes and conditions. What led them, you know, maybe they just don't have an alarm clock. Maybe they, they're not used to being structured and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a, and that's a skillful thing too. How do you, give people consequences, but also use it as a learning experience. Thank you, Ajahn. I, my question is about the timeliness of karma and the, rec the ability to either recognize or not why a particular karma is relevant to something that you either think, said, or did at some other time. Um, can you explain your question a little bit more? Sure. Suppose I did something 30 years ago, which was, um, I don't want to use the word bad, but ill thought mm -hmm. in my own mind. And all of a sudden, 
I realized that there was something in my life motivating a kind of karma that, in my mind, because I'm student and teaching, trying to learn, it relates back to that. And so it, it takes me a while to make that recognition. Do most people even do that? Hopefully, as we get older, we learn lessons. <laughs> you know, uh, not necessarily. Uh, generally, if people have some sense of self-awareness and they experiment through life, you tend to find out what works and what doesn't, and especially if there's some reflection in the past. So, why is it that it's like this? Well, I guess... I did that at that stage in my life, and I'm still receiving some of the repercussions from it. So, right? so that's that, uh, even that level of investigation, which I think is, is common, and then uh, that will help to modify our behavior, encourage um, more wholesome behavior. Right? But then you can refine that. You can take it to more and more refined levels. So you uh, go towards mastery of this, uh, this process of generating intentions and understanding the corresponding results. I don't know if that exactly refers to Well, to it your sort question. of does, yes. I, I have a second part to this question, though. I studied a little, little of Tibetan Buddhism around the issue of karma, and um, something that the Dalai Lama is credited with saying, but I'm sure came from the teachings of the Buddha, is that your enemy is your teacher. Yeah, absolutely. You don't even have to think in terms of enemy, but just think in terms of people that irritate us. <laughs> right? How are we supposed to develop patience if we're always surrounded by wonderful people who gratify our <laughs> desires? Right? It's, patience is a, one of the most important, wholesome qualities. So we're reliant on irritating people. So every time we encounter an irritating person, we should be grateful. <laughs> Right? And that's a much more wholesome intention to be motivated by. Right? So uh, sometimes in the monasteries, a bit suspicious. Someone comes up and I say, Oh, thank you for being such a good teacher. And you think, <laughs> what, are you, what are you saying? What are you saying? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Guy, there was one time I was so angry at one monk. I was just like, I just couldn't let it go. Senior monk, I was just so angry at him. And it was stuck. It was just me and him in the forest together. There was no escaping. <laughs> we were off in the middle of the hills in Chiang Mai. And it's like, I hate this guy. <laughs> i got to do something about it. I can't just allow this to continue. So I, I thought, well, all right. What is the most precious thing that I have? And it was this little relic of the, of the Buddha that had been given to me by one of the Thai forest ajans. And I said, this is my most precious thing that I you know, own of my, my little requisites. And so, all right, I'm just going to give it to him, right? He doesn't deserve it, <laughs> in my mind. But I'm going to give it to him anyways, just so that I can free myself from this idea of, you know, I hate it. I just have to somehow, I have to overcome those negative intentions. And so through that, I mean, I, you know, I went through the whole thing of bowing down and, and 
and offering this as a gift, and I didn't tell him why I was doing it. All right? I mean, I think he kind of knew anyway. <laughs> but, yeah. and, uh, and it felt so liberating. I felt so, so free and happy after that. And then uh, a few days later, later, he gave it back to me. <laughs> so it worked out really well. <laughs> Talk about the results of good karma coming back to you. Huh? <laughs> Thank you. So, but you know, like I'll be right there. Some one of the things that that does come up in in daily life sometimes is this mixture of wholesome and unwholesome intentions. It's not always clear. It's not like 100% one or 100% the other. It's kind of mixed. It's not actually mixed at the time, but you know, maybe kind of alternating. <laughs> and you got a few wholesome and then some unwholesome, and then there's no corrected to wholesome, but it's kind of... And then we find ourselves in these dilemmas in life where no matter what decision we make, it's going to be some unwholesome comma that results from that. And that, that's just part, it's very difficult to lead a, a life that's entirely only motivated by wholesome karma. Sometimes you find yourself in dilemmas. And then you just try to say in the big picture, which decision will have the least bad consequences. And then even though I know this is unwholesome karma, I'm willing to take it on for the greater benefit. And say, okay, I'll... I'm willing to do that. I'm not doing it blindly. I'm not doing it thinking that it's a good thing. And I'm not doing it thinking that, oh, my motivation is good, therefore it erases any bad karma. That's not the case. But I'm willing to take that on for the, the greater benefit. I mean, let's, if you're in an airplane and there's a hijacker, do you run up, as a Buddhist monk, would I run up and kill that hijacker in order to save the lives of everybody else? Right? Well, it's... It's still bad karma to kill. There's no uh, getting around that. But the intention, you know, would I be willing to take on that unwholesome karma <coughs> in order to help the other people on the plane? Right. Fortunately, I haven't had to test it yet. <laughs> yes, I had a question. You have the microphone? So you talked about um, wholesome karma or karma and um, not so wholesome. Uh, for lack of better words, I might not have all the wording right, but um, um, thank you for coming here. First of all, a lot of things that you said um, resonated with me and there's kind of like a beautiful synchronicity going on here. Um, but this week has been kind of heavy for me and I always struggle with weighing out um, happiness for myself, what's more beneficial for me or for others. And I always look at the whole in perspective, just like when you brought up the example of the fly or the mosquito and the elephant. And instantly I was thinking, and you also brought up, you know, if you fed a dog or a monk, and instantly I think, well, the life of the mosquito is just as valuable as the life of the elephant and the hungry monk is just as valuable uh, as the starving dog and 
that pattern and that struggle goes through with my life where I struggle with, you know, contributing to a society that is not beneficial for all beings and contributing to society to make sure that my loved ones that are close to me are okay and I don't go off in a bush somewhere and just live and be happy because that may worry and you know harm or hurt other people so I don't really know where my question lies it's a a struggle and I'm like I constantly grasp for straws but then I also try to live in the moment and think that whatever is going on or wherever I am right now um, I can you know find that happiness but I also feel like I don't, it's like a struggle where it's like it's not complete happiness for me like this life that we live as a whole is not it's not happiness for me and it's not happiness for everyone else so it's like do I just focus on happiness for self or is everyone included in that or at that struggle of just being happy with self or you know and um, the happiness of everyone else and um, I struggle with that balance and uh, it's I try to just focus on self and you know and to me that's easy and what's not easy is having that consideration and that cause and effect to trickle down for everyone and every being because that's what truly would make me happy and because we don't have that um happiness is just struggle but for self can easily (laughs) perk up and make self happy and do things um that's considered i think for me and other people but when i think well i always feel like i think of the whole and then that's when the burden gets heavy and i get lost and i don't know what to do if any of this is making sense well fortunately we don't have to choose between our happiness versus happiness of others. The same actions, the same lifestyle changes that we make can lead to both. Even just meditating regularly, saying, well, how is this helping anybody else? But then feel a lot more peaceful, more patient, more kind throughout the day. It's obviously going to benefit other people. I guess I'm looking for the ultimate because, like, to me, that's the given. That's but then the it's, that's like the given. Like, you know, um, I know that I, f- I feel that when I meditate um, for love and kindness and stuff, to me, that's like taking my soul to the spot. And I feel like that I know that's beneficial for me and for others. But then I feel like when we talk about moment, like staying in the present moment and then being in a society that I live in and that is the moment and it's I don't know if I could best articulate what I'm trying to say but um, I guess that's where my struggle really lies when when I when I'm not meditating or you know if it was up to me I could just you know maybe get some food and water and probably meditate and meditate and meditate and if that was more beneficial for us as a whole then I guess that would probably be where happiness would lie for me and I just don't know how to to do that or get to that point so maybe that's there, you know there are many many ways to practice you have to think whatever situation we find ourselves in this particular society family 
this particular day, this particular mood that we're in. Okay, so what's the wisest way to relate to that? Meditation is one. Could be a whole range. Sometimes keeping silence is helpful. Sometimes speaking is helpful. Sometimes not doing something is is the best because you know we, we, we know we're not in a it's not going to be a good result. Sometimes acting is called for. So there's no like one pattern that it has to be this way. But when you live in a particular situation then you just have to see well what is the wise response to this situation? Right? That's partly what we mean by mindfulness. When we talk about mindfulness we're not just talking about you know a passive awareness. Mindfulness imbued with wisdom. So we're aware of the situation. We see, well, what's the wise response? Wise response to that. We all have some wisdom. Everybody has some. may not be perfected, but we all have some. So, okay, well, what's the best and wisest response to this situation that would alleviate suffering? Whether it alleviates suffering in other people or alleviates suffering in our own minds, it's going to be beneficial either way. Well, sometimes you know people are motivated to make changes in society without without being motivated by wisdom, without having enough wisdom to really see what the results would be, right? And if it's motivated by anger or greed or just attachment to opinions, right? Then it can can not necessarily have the best result, even though the idea is I'm going to make society better. So that's why it's. It can be helpful to at least spend some of the time with self-reflection and just generating or just watching our own intentions. You know, creates a greater level of self-understanding and then from that, everything we say, everything we do is going to, is going to be, it's going to have a different flavor to it. Right? We're, even without trying, we're going to, we're going to change. We're going to, we're not going to be the same person the next day. If it seems too confusing, then just simplify. You know, you just start with a few basic, simple things, and and uh, see what the results are from those practices. Otherwise, it can seem a bit overwhelming. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.